Well, friends, we are in a uh, series in Micah 6, and Micah 6, 1 opens with, listen to what the Lord says. And so I am going to just pause here and pray, and, and Lord, I ask that you would give us ears to hear your message this morning, to hear the message of what you are speaking to us, and that we would be changed by it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we've been looking at the book of Micah and seeing how God is pronouncing judgment on the people of Israel who were the Sumerians and the Judahites at the time. Um, He's pronouncing judgment for the way that they're living, for the way that they have not been able to live out the covenant, which is the agreement that God made with them. But instead, they're engaging in idolatry rather than worshiping the Lord their God. They're perpetuating injustices. There were powerful people who were greedy and who were trying to get possession of the land that the poor farmers owned and, and take more for themselves. And so they used their power to accomplish this, even though it meant like stealing inheritances that belonged rightfully to someone else. Women and children and travelers were stripped of their possessions as a result. And the leaders of Israel were not doing anything about it. Instead, they were, cons- they were the ones that were also consuming uh, the, the stuff that belonged to the people that they were supposed to be protecting. These rulers were forsaking their God-given responsibilities. They were also, there were also false prophets rising up to contradict Micah's message and speaking messages of peace to the people that were really just things that people wanted to hear. Like, it's going to be okay. You don't have to deal with that. You don't have to think about that. And they weren't actually relaying God's messages. And so we're going to be in Micah chapter 6 this morning. So if you want to open that up in your Bibles, you can do that. Um, It opens with God asking his people what their complaint against him is. He wants to know what they believe he's done in order for that to justify them turning their backs on the covenant that he made with them. Now remember, a covenant is a promise or an agreement between two parties. And in this case, it's between God and Israel. And God had supplied the law that was meant to shape these people and um, to help them to identify as a chosen people of Israel. And obeying the law meant that they would get blessings from God, but disobeying the law meant that they would get judgment that would bring them back into obedience. And so that's what's happening here. And so let's read, starting in verse 1. It it says, God says, Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And so God's looking at his people and he's asking them if they have a case against him. He's like, what have I done to drive you to do the things that you're doing right now? And God calls the mountains and the hills to bear witness to his faithful covenant. And because they are longstanding witnesses of the works that he has done. And so he's like, you guys be the witness here. You've been around for a long time. And so God's asking, why have they chosen not to obey his laws and to live their lives this way? Why have they taken things into their own hands and stopped trusting that he will provide for them, even though that's what he has done all the way through the history of their lives? What has he done that has made them weary of doing good? Why do they not trust 
in the covenant that he made with them, forsaking it to get rich and do the quick rich schemes that we see them doing in the, in the book of Micah. Why are they not trusting that God will do what he says he will do if they obey him? And so I want to pause here and ask, can you identify with, with maybe what the Israelites were thinking? Are there ways that you're struggling to trust God right now? Do you feel weary in doing good? Do you struggle to believe that God is who he says he is? Maybe you're not seeing answers to prayer. Maybe your life doesn't look like what you want it to be. Maybe you aren't seeing the things that you thought you would be seeing in your life. Maybe you can't see how God is showing up in your life at all. Maybe he's not meeting your expectations for what a relationship with him would look like. And maybe you're thinking, God, I've been really good, and you haven't blessed me. Are you weary? I would like to suggest this morning that it's not God who wearies us, but it's our lack of trust in him. And I think God is asking us to, inviting us to ask the question today, what do we actually believe about him? I'm not asking you to recite your Sunday school answers here. Um, I'm not asking you to, to just be like, oh, the road answer is this, but to really dig into what we actually believe about God. This is an invitation for a moment of honesty. When I was living in Japan, someone gave me a devotional book on prayer. And I was in the middle of experiencing culture shock from having moved to a completely different country. And I was figuring out why God had taken me on this, this what was like this like crazy detour on what the, I thought the path of my life would be. And so my friend gave me this book for my, for my birthday, and I started to read it. And uh, in like chapter four, so pretty early on in the book, I read this sentence, God has a good plan for your life, and he's not trying to hurt you as he carries it out. And I looked at that sentence, and I looked at all of the ways that I was struggling and suffering and all the discomfort that I was experiencing right now. And I put that book down, and I never picked it up again. And it was probably the first time in my life that I'd had this moment of clarity and was honest with where I was at with God, that I didn't believe that he was good. Of course, if you were to, had, had asked me at the time to list the characteristics of God, I would have included goodness because I was trained to do that, that I, I was taught to do that. I'm a good pastor's kid. But in that moment... I couldn't confidently say that that was what I believed. I couldn't confidently say that I knew that he was good in my life. And so it's like in that moment, God was asking me, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? And my response was, well, you brought me here. And I don't really know why. And this is really hard. And it's not what I pictured for myself. And so I don't know if I believe that you're good. Because I had unmet expectations in my life, and I'm, I'm not sure what exactly I was expecting, but this wasn't it. And so it made me doubt that God was actually good. And so let's ask the question, what has God done to you? What do you believe or struggle to believe about God? I was listening to a sermon recently, and the pastor asked, do you believe that he's kind? Do you believe that he's trustworthy? Do you believe that he's empathetic or generous and loving? 
Or when you think about God, do you imagine him to be something less than what Jesus revealed him to be? Like maybe he's not fully unpredictable, but he's not exactly trustworthy. And maybe he's not stingy, but he's less than radically generous. And maybe he's not detached, but he's not really that present in your life either. My time in Japan was all about God teaching me that he is good. It was a lesson I had to learn, and it informed my view of him for the rest of my life, up until now. I hope it will in, in the future. Um, I, th- I thought, surely God can't be good because of all the things that I was experiencing. And really, he was bringing me to a place where I could experience his goodness in a richer, deeper way. And I've learned that lesson over and over again, that I can trust God's goodness, even when it seems like I can't. And so when I was pondering the question of how I see God and trying to be honest with myself alongside all of the other things that we've been talking about in the past few weeks, I realized that once again, my memory needs to be refreshed about who God is. And I need to take a hard look at what I'm believing about him. Because again, I can stand up here and I can say God is good and I can confidently say that now. But when I look at the list of questions that I just read to you about God's characteristics, the line, maybe God isn't fully unpredictable, stands out to me. You know, we've been looking at Psalm 34 a lot over the last couple of weeks. Pastor Charlie mentioned it in a passage or in a sermon a few weeks ago. We talked about it at All Our Welcome Wednesday discussion a few weeks ago as well. And Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I've been processing through this verse and talking a lot to God about it over the last few weeks because I'm not sure what the desires of my heart are. And that's something that I just realized recently. It's like I've stopped dreaming and acknowledging my own desires. Now, part of that, it might be because I wholeheartedly believe that God's plans are better than my plans. So when I have things that I want to do and they don't turn out the way that I thought because God has different plans, I know him and without fail, I experience his goodness in the difference between my plans and his plans. And I know this because my life doesn't look anything like how I thought it would look when I was in high school. In fact, in every stage of my life, I had this direction. I was like, okay, this, the next step is this. And every time God moved me in what felt like the complete opposite direction from what I was planning. And so even the day that I discovered the job posting that brought me here to Westview, I was in Vancouver and I had literally that morning said, I'm not looking to move back to Montreal. And six months later, I was starting my, my position as a youth pastor here. So God has changed my plans more times than I can count. But let me just say that even though my life doesn't look like how I thought it would, I do love the life that I have. And for the most part, I've loved the plans that God has for me. And they weren't always easy, but they were always good. And so that might be why I don't have dreams or desires. That might be part of it. Maybe I'm too busy to think about it. You know, I'm in school and I'm working. I'm pretty sure that's not it, though, because I'm an avid journaler and I like to think that I'm pretty in touch with my emotions. But there's also a piece of me that wonders if I don't know what the desires of my heart are because I've been, I haven't been paying attention and I've kind of given up a little bit. Like, I had desires and God kept changing them and what he's done has been good. And so maybe it's just easier for me not to hope 
not to have the, the feelings of desire, not to pay attention to those things. It's a safer thing to just ignore those and say that I want what God wants. But am I, am I really living that out? Or am I saying that maybe God's not fully unpredictable, but maybe there's a tiny part of me that believes that he's not fully trustworthy? So that's what I'm thinking through right now. And I just wonder if you can relate. If you pause and, and get really honest with yourself, are there things that you struggle to believe God with for? Do you have expectations about this life that he hasn't met? And if that's the case, if those little thoughts are sneaking in, what do we do? Well, in our passage, God asks, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And I want to point out that even though God is angered by the actions of the people that he's speaking to in Micah, he still calls them my people. And that's covenant language. That's language that communicates that he still loves them, even in their rebellion. In another verse, it reads, testify against me. He's saying, bring your evidence. Show your work, if you're in like math class. Um, and there was silence from the crowd. The Israelites didn't respond. He's saying, what have I done? And they're like... So God's standing there waiting to hear the evidence against him. And no one is saying anything. And God goes on to talk to Judah about all the things that he has done. He brings his own evidence. So let's read in verse 4. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. I want us to remember that last line, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God outlines all these things that he's done for his people. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That's freedom that he gave them. And then he says, I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam ahead of you. That's spiritual leadership. And then he says, remember Balak and Balaam. This is a story from, November, uh, from November, Numbers 22, where Balak was a king in the promised land. And the Israelites were just entering the promised land. And they were starting to conquer the land. And so um, the, the King Balak is like, I don't want you guys to conquer me. So I'm going to call Balaam, who's a prophet of God, and ask him to come and curse Israel so that they won't triumph over me. And so this, if you know the story, is the story of the talking donkey, where Balaam is trying to get to the king to pronounce the curse, maybe, and an angel of the Lord is blocking his path, but Balak can't see it. Balaam can't see it, but the donkey can, and she keeps trying to veer off the path because she's like, we're going to die if we go to this angel with a, with a flaming sword. And finally, after Balaam beats his donkey for her disobedience, she speaks to him, and she's like, bro, what are you doing to me? There's an, there's an angel. And so then Balaam's eyes are open, and he can see the angel. And the angel says, you can go along, but, but only say what the Lord tells you to say. And what the Lord tells him to say is a blessing over Israel, rather than a curse. And so by reminding them about this story, God is reminding them about now how he not only thwarted the efforts of someone to curse Israel, but he actually turned that curse into a blessing. 
And so remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal is the last thing that he, he reminds them about. And that's not a random road trip where they just had good times. That is the last leg of their journey from the wilderness into the promised land where God finally delivers on his promise after 40 years to give them a lush land of their very own. And so God's asking, have I wearied you? Have I burdened you? When you look at the evidence, who's at fault here? And then he says all of this that he said so that they may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God is confidently saying that in all these acts that he has done for Israel, that that was his purpose all along, that they would know the righteous acts of the Lord. And I think that that is the word that the Lord has for us today. When we are feeling like he has somehow let us down, like we somehow can't trust him fully, we need to remind ourselves of the things that he has done for us in our lives and listen to the stories of others so that we may know the righteous acts of the Lord. The word for know here is not just mental knowledge or untested theory, but the word is, the Hebrew word is yada, and it means relational and experiential knowledge. And here's a simple way that I've heard it explained. Some people believe that it's a bad idea to touch a hot stove, but some people know. They have experience, experiential and relational knowledge that touching a hot stove is a bad idea. And so when people, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, looked back at their history, they should have seen God's providential care for them. They should have seen that at many times and in many different ways and through many leaders and mediators, God was doing righteous acts on their behalf. But the people of Judah weren't paying attention. They didn't really see God's righteous acts. And they, those acts that they did see didn't inspire obedience. From them. They got distracted and they started doing other stuff. And instead of going after God and, and looking at what he has done, they began to um, look at their unmet expectations. And then they started to wander and they started to adopt the practices of the world around them. And so God brings these charges to them. And then we see their response finally in verse 6. And they say, what, with what shall we come to the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with, uh, with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall, my firstborn, shall, I, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The people of Judah have heard God's charge against them and they've seen the evidence of his righteous works and they're like, oh yeah. So they start to check themselves but, and they realize, okay, we're supposed to be worshiping God, so let's get on with that. So they start to like ask themselves, like, okay, what should, what should I do to do that? Okay, so um, they start to brainstorm their ideas and they start out simple and they get more and more outrageous and then they veer into the territory of sin in their list. They say, what do we bring for worship? Do we bow down? Will that satisfy him? That doesn't feel like enough. So probably not. How about burnt offerings? Like, how about the calves that are a year old? At the time, calves that were a year old were like the, the, the best offering that you could bring, the best sacrificial animal. Or how about thousands of rams? Or 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Or maybe it's so serious, maybe I need to sacrifice my firstborn child so, so that God will be satisfied and that my sin will be forgiven. 
And some of them might have been capable of doing this list, some of the things on the list at least. Bowing down, yes, probably everyone. Offering a year old calf, probably a few of them. But thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil, that was impossible for the average Israelite to produce. And they wouldn't have been able to afford it. And so they're just starting to exaggerate here and be like, okay, God, what do you want? You want all this stuff? And then they, they veer into sin, considering offering their children as sacrifices, which God explicitly says is sin in Leviticus 18.21 and Deuteronomy 18.10. And so all of this shows that they didn't really know God that they didn't really know what he wanted from them and that they didn't really see his righteous acts. They realize that, yes, they haven't pleased him and he wants to to draw them back. And so they've allowed their distrust of him to lead them into disobedience and to forget who he is. And they have experienced the things that he's done for them and they know what he wants from them, but they've forgotten somehow. And they've, they've been wondering, wondering how they can please him with their actions. And they're asking, like, how can God, I get God to accept me? How can I get God's approval right now? You see, false worshipers believe that their favor can be bought. And that God is the same way, that his favor can be bought just like theirs. And so they offer everything except what he asked for, which is a loving and obedient heart. And my question for us is, do we ever approach God that way? Do we ever say to him, okay, Lord, look, look, here's all the stuff that you can have. Like, here's a huge pile of stuff um, that I'm willing to give you, but don't you dare touch this. Like, here's everything you can, you know, that you could possibly want, Lord, but I'm just going to protect this. Please don't mess up my life too much. Please, please don't ask me to live without. I'm going to let you fill in the blank there. Or do we ever think to ourselves, like, okay, I'm going to do all the right things. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to do this checklist. And if I do all of this, this, these things, and if I give up all of this stuff, surely he's going to give me what I want. Surely I can get his approval. You see, when the Israelites brought these offerings to God when they were doing it in the right way. What they put on the altar was totally consumed by fire. And that was meant to express the person's devotion and commitment and complete surrender to God. And yet what we're seeing here in Micah is that they were withholding from God the very thing that he wanted from them, their loving, obedient heart. God didn't withhold anything from them. He says that to them. And they probably thought he did, but he didn't. And he didn't withhold anything from us either. How do we know that? Well, we're celebrating Christmas. And I find it ironic that the people in Judah think about offering their children as a sacrifice for their sins, as a way of gaining peace with God. And God never asked them to do that. And we already saw that it's sin. But that's exactly what God did for us. And so when we look at the ways that we might be distrusting God and and where our unmet expectations might be causing us to withhold from him our loving, obedient hearts because we're having trouble trusting him with what's happening in our lives and we're struggling to to see how he's working when our expectations are not met, we need to remember promises like Romans 8.32 
where Paul writes, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The Christmas season gives us a chance to ponder this in depth. God did not spare his own son for us. And this gives us a chance to yada his righteous acts, to understand his righteous acts, to yada him as a loving father. And to cling to this truth when we walk through hard times, whether those times are unmet expectations, whether they're periods of judgment that God is bringing into our lives to bring us back into alignment with his, his word, or the consequences of other actions that we are suffering from. And what's more, if you remember, earlier this morning, we were talking about the covenant of God, God made with Israel and how he's calling them to remember that they made a promise to him and he made a promise to them and he's been keeping it and they haven't. At Christmas time, we also remember another promise that God kept, which is the covenant that he made with David, that a king would descend from David's line, who would be the Messiah, the savior of the world. And that's Jesus who we're celebrating today. So this is another righteous covenant act of God as he's caring for his people. Now, when I look at some of the things that I've wanted in my life over the years that have been unmet expectations, I'm willing to admit that some of them that I've wanted were probably selfish. And I'm willing to admit that there were some of those things that, I, that I've wanted in my life that maybe would have led me farther away from God than bring me closer to him. But God's plans, although they've been different from mine, were so, so good, and I've yadad that for my, myself. I've been able to honestly say, Lord, I don't fully understand what you're doing here. This is not what I was hoping for, and this is not what um, I, I want to experience. What I'm feeling right now feels more like a curse than a blessing, but because I have experienced, because I have yadad your goodness in the hard, hard circumstances of life, I'm going to trust that you are good even when I can't see it, and I'm going to choose to follow you anyway. Pastor Tyler Staten says that that's the definition of spiritual health, that we close the gap between what we say we believe and what we actually live out in our lives. So are we living as if we believe God, or are we allowing the circumstances of our lives to lead us into a way of living that God never wanted for us in an attempt to meet those expectations on our own? Are we only paying lip service to the things that we believe while our lives are not aligned with that? See, remembering and experiencing what God has done for us is the remedy to healing any distrust that we might have of him. So when things aren't going according to our plan and when we doubt that he's good or that he's even working or that he hasn't shown up for us and we start to distrust him because of what we're seeing unfold in our lives, we only need to look at this manger. And we only need to look at this cross and what they symbolize. And that brings us back to the realization that just like Jesus, God took care of his people in Micah's day and provided for them in different ways through different leaders and mediators, he has done that for us ultimately in Jesus, in bringing Jesus down to earth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because we couldn't be that on our own. But because of Jesus, our mediator, the final mediator that God has provided for us, we are clothed in righteousness if we have accepted his sacrifice for us. And all we need to do is look at Jesus. We don't need to offer sacrifices like the people in Micah were wondering about. 
We just need to look at Jesus and accept the sacrifice that he's made for us. Seeing Jesus and fighting to keep sight of him every day is what is going to bring us into a life of real worship that God is calling the people of Judah to in this passage and that he calls us to as well. This is, this is the way that we are to live. God wants us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice as we read in Romans 12.1. And it's also how he calls us to live in Micah 6.8, which is the next verse. It says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God is asking not for rituals of worship from his people that are divorced from a changed life, but for real, true, changed living. And these are three things that he says characterize that living. God is asking us to act justly, to do the just thing yourself, to meet the needs of the people around you yourself as much as you possibly can, to fight for justice in this world. He is not talking about talking about justice And he is not talking about expecting others to do the right thing. He is talking about stepping up ourselves. And then God asks us to love mercy. And the Hebrew word for mercy is hesed, which means covenant faithful love. So we are to love the love that God gives to us. So we cannot live a life changed without that love. And so we need that. The love that caused God to send Jesus to the earth for our sake The love and holiness of heart and righteousness of life that flow from faith in Jesus is what God is looking for here. Without this, our going to church, our praying, our giving to the poor, anything that we do to make that things that we makes us think that we measure up to to God's standards is is nothing in His eyes. And finally, we are to walk humbly with our God. That's the that's the NIV version. There's another version that says you must be very careful to live the way your God wants you to. And this is intimidating. Like I see this passage and I see the expectations God has of me and I quake at how much I have fallen short and my sheer inability to do this. But again, let's find comfort in the Christmas message that God descended to us while we were still his enemies and that Jesus came in the humblest circumstances so that we wouldn't have to try to measure up to those standards on our own. Jesus lived the Micah 6, 8 life while he was on earth. He lived that for us. And so now we can enjoy the freedom to live that out in the best way that we can, to the best of our ability, living out the reality of our faith in the marketplace, being known for our acts of mercy and justice and carefully walking in the way that our God wants us to. We don't live this in, in, in a way that we're trying to, to measure up. Like I've said, this is not our version of bowing down or bringing bulls or thousands of goats or rivers of olive oil. We live this way because of what God has done for us in Jesus. We are empowered to do that. And so as we yada his righteous acts, we are moved to true worship of him with our whole lives, motivated to live rightly, and we close that gap between what we say we believe and what we actually live. In the book of Micah, God goes on to pr- pronounce all these judgments on, on the people. And these are also his good works because he's calling them back to himself through the judgment that he's pronouncing. And if you experience this in your life, know that that is why he's doing that for you as well. He's not judging you and condemning you to hell. He's judging you and disciplining you so that you can come back to him. 
But after the pronouncements of judgment, we come to Micah's final statements in chapter 7, and we'll start reading in verse 18. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Friends, the evidence of that faithfulness of God is all around us. And we are celebrating that very thing in this Advent season, waiting for Jesus to come and demonstrate God's faithfulness to us all through his ultimate end for our sin, if we accept Jesus. And so as we close today, I want to forego our Q&A time, which we normally have, and spend some time in reflection. It's not through our striving that God will tread our sins underfoot, as we read in that passage, or cast our sins into the sea. It is through Jesus. God has kept his promise to us. And my prayer for all of us is that we would yada that in our lives, that we would experientially and relationally know that. And so we're going to uh, do a period of reflection. I'm going to invite the band up. Advent is a reflective period. And we talked a lot today about closing the gap between what we know in our heads and how we're living. And reflection can be a good tool to do that. And so reflecting is not just here in church, but all throughout our lives on a daily basis. And you've probably heard me say before that I think one of the saddest verses in the Bible is Judges 2.10, which says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord or what he had done in Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, which are false gods. They, they didn't reflect. They didn't remember. They didn't share it with each other. That's how they got into this mess with Micah. So let's be people who remember and people who tell each other and who tell our children. And so as the band plays for a few minutes, I'd love for us all to spend time reflecting on these questions. Are there areas in my life where I might not be trusting God the way I think I should be or the way I, I need to be? Are there expectations I'm holding on to that I have to let go of? Do I experientially and relationally know God's love for me? And then spend some time just talking to God about that, asking him to reveal himself to you, to give you an experience of his love if you haven't had that. You know, when I was in Japan and I realized that I didn't believe that God was good, I told him that. And I trusted that he can handle it, and he can. And he showed me beyond a shadow of a doubt that what I thought I couldn't believe in, he, I actually could, that he was good. And he can reveal himself to you that way as well. And so we're going to spend a few moments in reflection, and then I'll close in prayer, and then parents, you can go and get your kids at the end of our reflection time. <laughs>